Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 29. Last week, I wrapped up with Mount Tabor, partially mentioned in Joshua Chapter 19, and connected to the city of Chrysloth Tabor. That was the only new place I would cover within the territory allotted to Zebulun. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. Next in the text is the land of Issachar, which I'll begin this episode with. And with that, let's get started. But before I move on to Issachar, Joshua does mention that the city of Bethlehem was within the boundary of Zebulun. That city needs no introduction. I'm also sure you've forgotten that I've already covered the history of the legendary place. I certainly had forgotten. Which isn't surprising, as it was nearly four years ago in Chapter 2, Episode 63, released in July of 2017. Obviously, I won't be covering it again. As for the next tribe, Issachar, it has the usual list of obscure cities and geographic references that I'm not covering. At least not yet. But it does have one place that needs to be discussed. Jezreel, both the city and the valley that share the same name. To be honest, I'm surprised I haven't covered either yet, as I know I've mentioned the Jezreel Valley probably a hundred times, maybe more. But before the valley, the city from which it's named. Also note that the history of both overlap greatly, and given how geography works, whatever happened in the city, by its very definition, also occurred in the valley. The Jezreel mentioned in Joshua 19 is likely the city, as it's found in a list of other cities in the area. This means it's also probably the same site as the archaeological location known as Tel Jezreel. As the name gives away, it's on top of a hill and in the eastern Jezreel Valley, which places it in the northern part of the modern country of Israel. In the Old Testament text, it was mentioned several times, with many historic events occurring there. Among these, it was the birthplace and hometown of Ahinoam, King David's second wife. According to 1 Kings, a royal palace of King Ahab was in Jezreel. It was also one of Ahab's primary fortresses within the kingdom of Israel, placing this part of the text sometime in the 9th century BC. This palace was said to have been one of the most famous of the royal residences of the kings of Jezreel, and was built next to the vineyard of Naboth. Unfortunately for him, Ahab's wife, the infamous Jezebel, wanted the vineyard, so she had Naboth executed. I'll let the text tell the details and the rest of the story. Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, so that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house. I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you my ancestral inheritance. Pausing for a second, the land had been in Naboth's family for some time likely since it was assigned to the tribe of Issachar. Also recall that among the many, 600-plus rules and regulations the Old Testament Jewish people lived under, they could not permanently sell their land. Unpausing. 
King Ahab went home resentful and sullen. The king lay down on his bed, turned away his face, and would not eat. Then his wife Jezebel came to him and said, Why are you so depressed that you will not eat? He replied, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and asked him to give me your vineyard for money, or else, if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard for it. But he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel replied, Do you now govern Israel? Get up, eat some food, and be happy. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth. Jezebel wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. She had the letters sent to the elders and the nobles who lived with Naboth in his city, meaning in Jezreel. In the letters, she told the city's leaders to proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the assembly, seat two scoundrels opposite him, and have them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. The men of Jezreel, the elders and the nobles who lived in the city, did as Jezebel, under the guise of the king, had told them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the assembly. Then the two scoundrels came, sat opposite him, and brought a charge against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. They then sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Go, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, for Naboth is dead. When the king heard of this, he took the land. But the story isn't quite done. God told the prophet Elijah to go down to meet King Ahab of Israel. He's also told where to find the king, in the vineyard in Jezreel. When he finds the king, Elijah is to tell him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? Meaning of Naboth in his vineyard. Elijah then tells him, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, dogs will also lick up your blood. A bit ominous. Elijah then lays out a list of all the curses Ahab is facing, essentially that he and his wife Jezebel will be consumed by dogs, and if the dogs don't do it, the birds will. The next couple of sentences are inside parentheses and serve to set the stage for what was to happen next. They read, Indeed, there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, urged on by his wife Jezebel. He acted most abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord drove out before the Israelites. When Elijah was done explaining to the king what was a-coming, Ahab tore his clothes and put sackcloth over his bare flesh. He fasted, lay in the sackcloth, and went about dismayed. Then the word of the Lord came again to Elisha. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster on his house. There's a message in there, but I don't do theology. Of course, Jezebel hears of this and has a bounty put on Elisha's head. Then the narrative covers what else Ahab and the cast of characters were up to. 
wars with Israel, other prophecies, and the like, with Ahab ultimately dying in battle. Eventually, it would all catch up with Jezebel and in Jezreel. When the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, Jehu, came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard about it. She put on makeup and got made up. Or, as the text recounts, she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. As Jehu entered the gate of the city or palace, the text is less than clear. She said, Is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? What's lost in the context is that she was taunting the king. Jehu looked up to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said to them, Throw her down. One of the first cases of defenestration, at least recorded. And that's just a $10 word for throwing someone out a window. There's more gory detail to the story found in the text, but I'll skip that part. Just know that what was foretold by Elijah, that she would be consumed by dogs, did indeed come to pass. Jezebel was so reviled that even a 4th century Christian nun who visited Jezreel recorded that the tomb of Jezebel is stoned by everyone to this very day, some 1,200 plus years later. After this, Jehu has many of Ahab's descendants, 70 in all, executed, all while Jehu was still in Jezreel. Jehu would then kill Ahab's remaining family in Jezreel, along with all who were left of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his leaders, close friends, and priests, until he left no survivor. After that, Jehu left the city for Ahab's capital of Samaria. But I'll just end it there as that's enough to know that Jezreel was a city with a particularly violent history. Later in the Old Testament, in the book of Hosea, which dates to about the 8th century BC, so about 100 years after Jezebel and Jehu, God commands Hosea to name his son Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In the next chapter, God also tells Hosea about a future event, that Israel will be defeated in the Jezreel Valley. And that's the biblical text. Fortunately, the outside record does lend additional insight into Jezreel. The first, and it's more general insight instead of specific historic information, but that's that the location of the city and its proximity to the historic valley has been a key contributor to the continued prominence of the city. The city is said to be located high enough above the valley to offer spectacular views. The view wasn't a primary contributor to the success, but instead it was the high ground in a very defensible position. Below the city and in the valley lay a trade route, a road that also allowed the flow of military forces from the coast to Galilee. Forces and products from Egypt, Syria, inland Mesopotamia, among many other places. The archaeological history of the site goes back at least as far as the 5th millennium BC and are part of what's known as the Wadi Rabbah culture. Among the finds and ruins are the usual pottery and a smattering of small rectangular structures. This culture had sites scattered throughout the region. 
As for the city of Jezreel, though it was occupied, it appears to have been unfortified throughout the entire Bronze Age, a period that would include Abraham, Jacob, and Joshua. In the Iron Age, and owing to its location, along with a nearby spring and grazing lands in the Sinominous Valley, Jezreel would develop into a major city, to the point that in the 9th century BC, the king of northern Israel, Omri, would build a fort in the city. 21st century, in that's AD, excavations have uncovered a casement wall with four projecting towers surrounding the fortress. These were built with a combination of well-cut stones along with boulders and smaller stones and an upper level of mud brick. The fortress enclosed an area of almost 11 acres, making it over 36,000 square meters. It was 860 feet long by 470 feet wide, over 260 by 140 meters. On the north was a steep slope, with the other three sides presenting the obstacles of a wall and a 20-foot, 6-meter deep moat. There also seems to have been both a vineyard along with a winery dating to the period. No surprise there. But the vineyard did not leave direct archaeological evidence, though soil analysis found that the land in Jezreel is properly well-matched for growing grapes, while the soils in fields further west from the location were found to be the right quality for growing olives. Not conclusive, but possible. As for the winery, there is more solid evidence, including what's been described as a particularly impressive installation carved into the limestone bedrock at the foot of the hill of Jezreel. There were also rock-cut treading floors, two adjacent rock-cut vats, each more than three feet, one meter in depth, another treading floor connected to a vat by a rock-cut channel, a deep circular basin that possibly functioned as an additional vat along with a sump for collecting liquids. Later, the city of Jezreel would become a base for King Ahab's army, more specifically his cavalry and charioteers. Both of those forces relied on horses, and the valley was the perfect place in the region to position them. After Ahab's death, his son Jehoram would continue to use the city, a situation that remained until it was conquered by the Arameans later in the century. The dating to this period is supported by pottery fragments uncovered in the city. Jezreel would become a Byzantine village, then Muslim, then Crusader, reverting back to Muslim, then Ottoman, just like the rest of the region. And finally, in the 20th century, becoming part of Israel. And that's the city. Time to move to the valley with the same name. The Jezreel Valley is sometimes rendered as the Valley of Megiddo. The name Valley of Jezreel was sometimes used for the central part of the valley, the part around the city of Jezreel, while the southwestern portion of the extended valley was known as the Valley of Megiddo. This was, of course, in reference to the city of Megiddo, located there. Whichever name you use, it is a large fertile plain in the inland valley in the north of what is today Israel. To the north of the valley was the hill country of Lower Galilee. To the south were the Sumerian highlands. In the west and northwest was the Mount Carmel mountain range, and the east was the Jordan Valley, 
the one carved by the river with the same name. All of these places should sound familiar, as I've either covered the history of each, or at least mentioned numerous times, with the overriding point being that the Jezreel Valley was central to much of the history that had already unfolded, and much more to come. In the Old Testament, in Judges, the valley was where the Israelites, led by Gideon, were victorious against the Midianites, the Amalekites, and people referred to as the people of the east. Who this last group was is not known. A little bit after that, the valley was where King Saul was defeated by the Philistines in 1 Samuel 29. Finally, in Revelation, Armageddon is the site of a final battle between good and evil. As I've mentioned before, Armageddon is the Greek name for Tel Megiddo, which was located in the Megiddo Valley, the southwestern portion of the Jezreel Valley. Those are just the highlights of the valley in the biblical text. There are many other mentions of it, but most are essentially the same as those referring to the city. There is one more thing. The biblical cities in the Jezreel Valley include, of course, Jezreel and Megiddo, but also Bet-Sheen, Shimron, and Afula. Before the outside record, a little about the geography and geology. The valley forms a more easily traveled route through Canaan than crossing the mountains on either side, as many valleys in the region do. This was the driving force for the trade in the military battles. There is a strong contingent of geologists who believe the valley once acted as a channel for water between the Mediterranean Sea at the northwestern end of the valley and the Sea of Galilee, then to the Jordan Valley, and ultimately the Dead Sea. What this theory proposes is that up to about two million years ago, all of these bodies of water were connected as one larger water mass, or at a minimum, as the sea level fluctuated, they were occasionally connected. Then, sometime around two million years ago, as the land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan Rift Valley rose, this seawater connection was permanently cut off, and the periodic floods from the Mediterranean Sea stopped. Ultimately, this resulted in the Dead Sea no longer having a connection to the ocean. Over time, due to the evaporation rate exceeding the precipitation and surface water inflow, the Dead Sea became heavily saline. The Sea of Galilee, on the other hand, since it has an outflow, in this case the Jordan River, remains fresh water. As for the outside record, archaeological excavations show nearly continuous occupation in the valley beginning around 4500 BC until about the 13th century AD. Of course, the valley has been occupied since then too. We just don't have to rely on archaeology to demonstrate that. Backing up a bit, in the 15th century BC, the Egyptian army, under the command of Pharaoh Thutmose III, fought a large rebellious coalition of Canaanite vassal states led by the king of Kadesh in what has become known as the Battle of Megiddo. The Greeks would call this the Battle of Armageddon. In the battle, Egyptian chariots, their primary fighting vehicle, were of limited use and only worked well in the Jezreel Valley. In the mountains, they were as close to useless as possible. This battle was fought while the Israelites were living in Egypt and in the Middle Bronze Age. 
archaeological records show that during the Iron Age, in the western portion of the valley, the Philistines were well situated, leaving pieces of pottery behind to be uncovered in the last couple hundred years. These have been found in a number of various tells and cities, over 13 in total. In some of this period, in recalling the episodes where I covered Egypt and the Sea Peoples, it's commonly thought that the Sea Peoples worked as Egyptian mercenaries, and this is the same group that morphed into the Philistines, at least around the 12th century BC. Shortly after this, they would gain more territory in the region that was centered around Canaan. The uncovered artifacts show contact and trade between the Philistines and Israelites at least as early as the 11th century BC, a timeline that roughly aligns with the narrative found in the Pentateuch and later books including Joshua. The quantity of the Philistine pottery found at the various sites in the valley is not exceptionally large, though the quality does make up for the lack of volume, at least somewhat. One interpretation of this lack of quantity is that there weren't many Philistines in the valley or that they intermingled with the more native population. This would also place them in the valley in the 11th century BC, the commonly accepted time of the Battle of Gilboa, the one where they defeated, then killed King Saul and several of his sons. Earlier this year, and for those of you listening after the release date, it's currently 2021, Either way you get the podcast, just a few months ago, in the village of Etteyuba, an engraved stone from a late 5th century AD church entrance, meaning door frame, was uncovered. On it was a Greek inscription that reads, Christ born of Mary, this work of the most God-fearing and pious bishop Theodosius and the miserable Thomas was built from the foundation. And I'm going to pause here for a second. My advice to you is that if someone is carving your demeanor into stone, is to not let them describe you as being miserable. It'll last for the ages. Granted, in ancient Greek, it could also translate to misery, anxiety, grief, or depression. Still not very flattering, but not nearly as bad as being described as miserable. The inscription continued by asking that whoever enters should pray for them. As for Theodosius, he is regarded as one of the first Christian bishops, and this church was the first evidence of the Byzantine church's existence in the village. At the turn of the 20th century, the Ottomans would construct a railroad that ran the length of the valley. In the 1870s, a Lebanese family purchased a large lot of land from the Ottoman government. While they did not live there, they rented the land to Arab farmers. In the early 20th century and during World War I, after the area became part of the British Mandate, this Lebanese family sold a portion of the land in the valley, in this case over 125 square miles, in excess of 325 square kilometers, They sold it to the American Zion Commonwealth. This group was a Jewish organization endeavoring to resettle Jews and other displaced peoples. The overall feeling was that the group overpaid for the land. In order to resettle, something had to be done with the Arab tenant farmers. Many were forcibly relocated by the British government. In many cases, they ended up in coastal villages. 
A few received compensation, but many were simply sent packing. After the land purchase, the Jewish farmers created settlements. They also drained swamps to increase the arable land. As you would imagine, and given the current tensions in the region, this is a somewhat recent but still historic example of what has led to the current conflict. As for the overall history of the valley, especially that part that has remained relatively constant throughout the era, it has been described as a huge green lake of waving wheat, with its village-crowned mounds rising from it like islands, and it presents one of the most striking pictures of luxuriant fertility which is possible to conceive. This particularly verbose description was by a British visitor in the 19th century. Along with the wheat, the valley is covered in fields of melon, citrus fruits, watermelons, various beans and legumes, and even corn, cotton, and sunflowers. The agriculturally astute among you will note that many of these are not native species. It's also used for the grazing of sheep, cattle, and horses. No surprises on that list. A list which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue in the book of Joshua. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.